So this morning we're continuing in this, uh, this series on the life of King David. And oddly enough, get this, we, we come to this chapter where there's this bully named King Saul who has convinced himself that this young shepherd boy named David needs to die. David's been uh, fighting on behalf of Saul's army. He's a friend to Saul, but he's a bit too good, right? He's too good at what he does. He's a giant slayer. And Saul begins to see this man as a direct threat to his throne. So last week we learned that Saul had made the first attempt in this man's life, but he missed first two attempts, I should say. And this week, this week the hinges fall off because Saul wants his family to join him now in his murderous plan. We're going to learn this morning how one man's sin leads to a fallout and the destruction of not only his life, but the life of his children too. So let's turn to 1 Samuel chapter 19. 1 Samuel chapter 19, we're going to read verses 1 through 18 together. Let's hear now the word of the Lord. And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on guard on your guard in the morning and stay in a secret place. Hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in my field where you are. I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I'll tell you. Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took the, his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine. And the Lord worked a great salvation for all of Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence just as before. And there was war again. David went out, fought with the Philistines, and struck them with a great blow, so that they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. David was playing the lyre. Saul sought to pin David to the wall with a spear, but he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him that he might kill him in the morning. But Michal, David's wife, told him, if you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be killed. So Michal let David down through the window and he fled away and escaped. Michal took an image, an idol, and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head, covered it with clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he's sick. Then Saul sent the messengers to see David, saying, Bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. When the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed with the pillow of goat's hair on his head. Saul said to Michal, Why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he's escaped? Michal answered Saul, He said to me, Let me go. Why should I kill you? Now David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went out. And lived in Naoth. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Anyone ever heard of the Jukes Edwards controversy? The Jukes Edwards controversy? In 1874, a sociologist by the name of Richard Dugdale was hired by the New York prison system to curb the, the rise of crime in the city. Richard was tasked with finding these trends in the prison population that would somehow help the city reduce the rate of crime that had been spiking. 
But as Richard dug into the facts and figures in front of him, he stumbled across something really peculiar. He found six guys with the same last name who were all incarcerated in the same prison system. Despite being raised in different locations by different immediate families, miles apart, these six men all had stumbled into the same trap. And he wondered, Richard wondered, how, how did these six distant relatives end up with the same rap sheet? So he dug a bit deeper and he began looking at the lineage of each one of these men and he was astonished. Richard found decades of court records and arrest reports, poor house registries, blotter entries that went back for generations. Each one of them had ties to just one man. That man was Mr. Jukes. Get this, out of 1,200 individuals in the Jukes family line, 130 were convicted criminals, 60 were found guilty of robbery, 400 were documented drunkards, 300 were listed as homeless, and seven were convicted murderers. Makes for a depressing family reunion, doesn't it? Here's where the controversy comes in. Years later, in 1897, another scholar by the name of A.E. Winship was tasked to prepare a, a nearly identical study on a different family name. And this lineage was the contrast, the direct opposite of the Jukes family. It included a U.S. vice president, three senators, three state governors, three mayors, 13 college presidents, 30 judges, 65 professors, and over 100 lawyers. And oddly enough, just like the Jukes family, every person on that list could be traced to the same family name. The family name was Edwards. You might remember to be specific, it was the Reverend Jonathan Edwards. Edwards was one of the greatest theologians in American history. He was the third president to sit at Princeton University. Whoop, whoop, right, Tasha? Third president to sit at Princeton Seminary. He was one of the chief leaders in the Great Awakening, led revivals and, and wrote books that still influence the faith today. And for years, it's been hotly debated, right? What made these two families go such separate ways? Was it nature or was it nurture? Was it education? Was it economics? Was it work ethic, opportunity, genetics? You name it, the argument's been made, but wherever you land on the, the debate, it seems to me there's at least one common denominator between the two families. And I'm gonna throw a curveball at you. This is just my thought. What if it's the parents? It's the parents, right? For, for both families, their saga began when one man made his own choices, Jukes or Edwards. And while neither man may have consciously understood the reality, their choices changed everything from that generation on down. Parents passing the lifestyle onto their children and their children's children. Keep that thought, hang on to it. Weeks ago, we learned that the spirit of the Lord had left King Saul because of his poor leadership, right? He and God's people had rebelled against the Lord. He had chosen this, this sinful path and the sinful path had finally caught up with him. So God sends this prophet Samuel to remove Saul from his post. Remember Samuel told him, he said, you may have thought little of yourself, but God made you king, Saul. And from that point forward, the, the kingly line of Saul was gone, destroyed. Mr. Jukes. And you'll remember at the same time, by God's direction, he sends the prophet Samuel, this, this, this prophet to come and anoint this young shepherd boy named David. David becomes his replacement. And as the story of David now goes on, we begin to see how this prophetic word from Samuel begins to take fruit. We turn the page and you come to find King Saul and Israel are at war with the Philistines, right? And in God's providence, David shows up on scene. He volunteers. 
He and Goliath go toe-to-toe, and by the end of the chapter, it's clear this man is only on a trajectory going up. The nation of Israel was screaming those chants in the streets. Y'all did so well with that last Sunday. Saul thousands, David ten thousands. And as Saul heard those words, all he had to do was a little math. And he knew the beginning of his end had come. But just think about this. What, what king, what leader historically just lets go of their people? Even think about the conflict right now overseas, right? What, what leader just gives up power peacefully? Not many. So last week we began tracking the demise of this king. First we see Saul's envy, then it festered into murder, or festered into anger, then went into attempted murder. And now he sent David to the front lines of yet another battle, hoping that the enemy would kill him. That'll get rid of the problem. But now this morning, this deranged king, we find is willing to take down his entire family just to get his way. Look at this in verse one. Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. You know, it's tragic, right? How how does one man allow his pride and his envy and his arrogance to pull his entire family down with him? Reminds me of that that first ever family feud in the Bible of, of Cain and Abel. Abel receives God's blessing. Remember, Cain's miffed about it. He says, I want what's mine. And much like Saul, he goes into this jealous, envious rage. He throws this temper tantrum. So the Lord comes to him with this warning in Genesis 4. He says, Cain, sin is crouching at your door. It wants to devour you. You must master over it. But Cain can't help himself. Cain sins, destroys his brother, murders him, and wrecks his family. See, King Saul thought, he thought he could manage this sinful desire in his life, right? He, he thought he could get what he wanted with this, this little amount of collateral damage. But look at this in James 1.15. It says, when lust conceives and gives birth to sin, the sin inevitably leads, leads to death. And by the time we open up to chapter 19 this morning, things are out of control. Saul has allowed his, his foolishness to pull his own son into this murderous plot. You know, sin is an interesting thing, right? It's, a, it's an interesting spectacle to watch play out. Just think about your family for a minute. Think about the, the pattern of sin and things that happen in your own generations in your world. I think we often forget that our actions today carry consequences for tomorrow. See, back in chapter 18, we're told Saul's son, Jonathan, that he loved David as his own son, on his own soul, right? This, this wasn't just any friendship. David was like the, the young uncle that Jonathan never had. And now Saul wants him to kill him? So Jonathan goes into a panic. He goes running to David, tells him to hide until he can figure this out. He goes running back to his father, begs him to come and come to his senses. And look at this in verse four. He says, dad, don't sin against David. He's done nothing against you. He's brought good to you. You're gonna have innocent blood on your hands. Bold words said to a king from a son, Jonathan was walking on thin ice. And for a moment, it's crazy. We're told Saul, listen, right? He took in his words and he, he declares a ceasefire. Look at this in verse six. He makes this promise. He says, I swear to the Lord, as God lives, he will not be put to death. I'm done. You're right. When we had our, our first and I, I made this really intentional decision as a father. A mentor in my life told me, he said, Ryan, whatever you do, be careful with the word promise as you raise that little girl. I told Taylor from, from early on in Addie later that, that if you hear me word, use the word promise, I'm going to keep it every time. If I say promise, you can guarantee my word's my bond. 
Now that's a dangerous game, right? Because if I fail, that word becomes far less meaningful. Just last night, Taylor asked me to tuck her in. I said, I'll be right there. I was reading a book. She said, do you promise? I was like, yes. You know, in our house, that seal, that word, it's become like a four-letter word. I, I, don't, I don't use it hardly ever. I'm scared of that word. See, but I mean, here's Jonathan trying to talk his father out of this sinful cycle in his life, trying to get him to see the damage that he's done in himself and in his family. And he swears on it. He makes a promise not only to his son, but to the almighty God to never make a murderous attempt again. I'm done with it. I'm over it. I, I've learned my lesson. See, but here's the thing about sin. It's an animal crouching at your door wanting to devour you. You ever made a promise to God and realized like, you didn't keep it? Like, I'll never make that mistake again, Lord. I promise I'm, I'm gonna change my ways. I'm a new man. See, Saul's convinced himself, I won't do it again. He, he sees the heartbreak in his son, maybe. Imagine the emotion of hearing your own child call you out in your sin. But it's not long before the pattern repeats itself. We're told David got back into another battle with the Philistines. He crushes it because that's what David does in battle. He comes back home and what happens? Saul's envy again gets the best of him. Look at this in verse 10. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with a spear, but he eluded him. Now, if you were here last week, that should, that should pop off all kinds of light bulbs. This, this is almost the exact same verse we read last week, verbatim. This is now Saul's third attempt at murder. He's fallen back in. Look at how Christ explains this in, in John 8. He says, truly I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. See, the, the consequence of our sin is it becomes this, this unruly cancer. It, it metastasizes from one area of our lives to the other. And before you know it, you're lost in it. Before you know it, others get swept up in it. What began as a, a small little feud between David and Saul and this internal struggle of envy and pride has now affected Saul's own next of kin. And it's not just his son. Look at what happens next. David's on the run now. Look at this in verse 11. So Saul sent messengers to David's house that he might kill him in the morning. His wife told him, if you don't escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you're a dead man. Now, context is super important here. I got to catch us up. Because long before this moment, Saul had already set his daughter up with King David for a specific purpose. Just before our lesson, Saul realized it's not going to work to just send this man in battle. He just keeps crushing it. We, we, need, a, we need a game plan. D David needs a distraction. I know what I'll do. I'll set him up with my daughter. Look at this, chapter 18, verse 20 to 21. Now Saul's daughter Michal loved David and they told Saul and the thing pleased him. He thought, let me give her to him that she may be a snare to him and then the Philistines will kill him. See, this is a train wreck, right? Where do you find God glorified in this chapter? How's a preacher supposed to preach the good news out of this? It is dark, it is, it is broken, it is, it, is, it, is, it is the shadows literally of death that they are walking through. Can we get nerdy for a minute? You know how I do. We're going to have Ryan's nerdy moment for a minute. Turn your Bibles with me if you have them to Psalm 59. If you don't, we're going to put this up on the screens. But I want you to see something at play in this drama that you might not have otherwise seen. This Psalm is David's prayer, probably in the exact moment as he's landed out of the window in the alleyway running from his foes. 
In your Bibles, you'll read the, the context. It says, to the choir master, when Saul sent men to watch David's house in order to kill him. And this was his prayer. He said, deliver me from my enemies, O oh my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil, for behold, they lie and wait for my life. See, Saul's convinced he's going to kill David, right? The anointed one, the man chosen by God to lead his people. All the while, here's where God's at work. David's behind the scenes on his knees asking for God's salvation. Deliver me, Lord. They, they lie in wait for my life. Save me from my enemies. And in the darkest moment of David's life, God is now moving to answer his prayer when no one could even see it. Protecting him, watching over him, keeping him. Michal sneaks him out the back window and he runs for the woods. Let's talk about the woods for a minute. The state of Oregon has one of the largest living organisms in the world. Uh, it's known as the honey mushroom. But the name is kind of confusing. It's a little bit deceiving because for years now, it's been slowly killing off the forest one tree at a time. The organism shoots out these black threads all underground beneath the surface. And as it passes from root to root in the trees, it destroys the trees. The worst part about the honey mushrooms is that scientists can't track it. They can only see the damage by flying ab above the forest and watch the pattern through the, the, dead, the dead shrubs. See, this is the sin of King Saul, right? He, he just keeps shifting in it. The sins of invading, it starts destroying. And at first you can't see it, but it's not long before the damage bubbles up to the surface. First his relationship with David, then his relationship with his own son, Jonathan, and finally in his relationship with his daughter, Michal. We're told Michal takes a, a teraphim, our, our scripture says an, an image, right? A, a teraphim was a wooden idol used for household worship. And she tucks it in bed with, with, as though it's David with this goat's hair on it that would make it look like her husband was sick and sleeping. Anybody ever sneak out of the house in the middle of the night as a child and you put like all your, your pillows in there and made it look like you were asleep? This is where it began, right here. <laughs> David runs for his life. She, uh, Michal fools Saul's men into thinking he's sick. Finally, Saul catches on to the ruse and look at this in verse 17. He says, why did you deceive me and let my enemy go? Michal answered, he tried to kill me. What do you want me to do? Is that true? David tried to take the life of his wife. She just poured gas on the fire. See, never underestimate the, the spread of one human sin. As followers of Jesus, it should be our heart's desire to look for those patterns of brokenness in our families and in our children and our own lives. And yet, if we're honest, we also know that that sin is so pervasive, it's like a fungus in us. How is it, how is it that with all the history books, all the technology, all the advancements of society, all the lessons learned in history for centuries, and we're right back on the brink of World War III? How is that? You say Ryan's exaggerating. There's a reason NATO's going to Poland right now. I was talking this over with a mentor of mine this week. His name's Mike Anderson. Mike is a, just a phenomenal friend. He's a chaplain to all the pastors in our regional, uh, uh, what we call a presbytery, our region of pastors. And um, Mike, before he was our chaplain, he served as the family's pastor down in Cherry Hills Church down in Denver, huge church. And Mike knew he needed some backup to, to create this new family ministries uh, that they had set up for him. So he went to a man by the name of Larry Crabb. Larry Crabb at the time was one of the best Christian counselors in, in the nation. He wanted to get some advice from him. 
You might not know that name, um, but he, he was always chock full of wisdom. He said to Larry, he said, what is the one thing that I need to think on? What is the one focus that I need to make to, to make this family ministry work? What's the one thing we need to do? Mike said, Larry thought about it for a moment and he said, if I were you, I would create a sense of despondency among your families. Now think about that. A pastor's asking a counselor, what's the first thing I should do to create a healthy family ministry? And he said, I would, I would create a sense of desperation, despondency. Mike said, he went on to explain, he said, this is why. He said, it's not until we realize the depth and pervasiveness of sin in our lives that we can then turn to the only one who can destroy it. You know, yesterday in our parenting conference, I'm, I'm sure I wasn't able to be there, but I'm sure Paul Tripp talks about how we have to stop this idea of, of sin management, of making our, our children good little boys and girls. Because what we really need is a transformation. We, we need the gospel. We need the gospel first in my life so, so that I can spread it into the lives around me. See, the difference between Saul and David in this moment is Saul is scheming in his sin. He's living out his flesh. Meanwhile, David's on his, on his knees in desperation, despondent before the Lord. See, King Saul's legacy is that he not only allowed his sin to, to destroy his life, but he allowed it to invade his family's life. And much like that Mr. Juke, he, he couldn't see beyond his selfish ways. He was so caught up in controlling the narrative. It's not long before you begin to see the spread of the, the honey mushroom. Even as Mikal, his daughter, is trying to do the right thing, she ends up landing on her face and saying the exact wrong thing. See, what Saul needed was repair and repentance in his life. He, he needed the intervention of God to save him from himself, but he wouldn't do it. It seems to me this, this David guy, he was a flashpoint for, for all those around him. He, he caused a decision, right? Will Jonathan cling to David, the anointed king, or is he going to go to his own father, the rejected king? Will Michal cling to her husband and, and stay faithful in, in the matrimony that they have together, or will she go the way of her father, who's declared David now an enemy? See, and I think like David, Jesus commands the same flashpoint of decision. Right, as we look around it as a broken and floundering world still lost in its sinful patterns, we too are faced with this choice. Will you cling to the anointed one of Christ and his way, allow him to do the change in you, or will you choose in vain to go your own way? The Lord takes the mess of this, this impossible situation, this darkness created by Saul's life, and while all this chaos is swirling around him, we hear the cry of that psalm, Lord, deliver me. Deliver me from, from evil. Deliver me from my distress. See, here's where God's moving, right? If God can take this chosen man and answer his plea on his knees, how much more will Christ hear ours and change us? The Jukes family, the Edwards family. Here's another common denominator. Every family has a junk pile somewhere on the farm. It's just a matter of how well we keep it covered. And maybe the, maybe the thing that was different about the two is that it's only when we bring our brokenness to the Lord, it's only when we bring our darkness before the light to have it revealed and healed and saved that we finally discover life again. This week, let's, let's ask God to 
to deliver us from our enemies, to deliver us from ourselves and our, our sin as we do our best to live for him. Will you pray with me? God, we, we read this story and we um, are not shocked by it. Lord, we're all too familiar with the, the dysfunction in our lives, the places where our sin has led to uh, hard times, led to, led to struggles. And God, we, we pray this morning that you would lead us to live lives that pursue you. God, I know that you've called us to be holy as you are holy, and yet we, we know that we bring our stained hands, our, our broken selves so often as we, we look around at the, the carnage created by our own pride, our own selfish ways, our own, uh, our own patterns. And Lord, we just pray, would you take all that away? God, would you make us a people of the gospel, a, a people who cling to you, to your good news, Lord, that, that we would come to you knowing that there's, there's nothing we can bring to the king except for faith. Lord, we pray this week that you would change us by that good news. That in Jesus' name, we were made well again. That in Jesus' name, you promised you are restoring all things. That in Jesus' name, we have salvation. God, may we be a people who pass on that faith to the generations and generations to come. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.